everyone, and thanks for joining us today. My name is Lydia Kincaid. I'm Managing Director for IIM, and we have our managing member, Lee Harris, on as well. Today, we are going to talk about why startups fail. Uh, we know startups fail. They're high risk, um, but we as investors are always looking for ways to mitigate that risk. Um, so there's a list um, that we want to go through with you all. It was provided by CB Insights of the top reasons that startups fail. And actually, Forbes says that, what, 75% of venture-backed startups fail, Lee? Is that the most recent data you saw as well? Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, generally, 50% of startups fail and 75% of venture-backed startups fail, which is kind of uh, counterintuitive. You would think that uh, the venture firms would would have a better batting average than that. But uh, again, those are, are, are really broad statistics, but I think that they've been generally accepted in our industry. So right. I think I think one of the things that might be interesting at some point during this podcast is to speculate a bit as to why uh, so many venture-backed startups uh, actually fail. So we can we can touch on that later. Mm-hmm. I mean, being in this space, we know it's high risk. We know a lot of our companies are going to fail. So far within our portfolio, we have 15 companies in our portfolio as of today, soon to be 16 by Friday, if, if things all go as planned. Um, but so far we've had no failures, um, which I think is a testament to our risk mitigation process. And our founders are just outstanding. They're they're hustling, they're pivoting, they're working with their teams, they're listening to opinions of others um, and adjusting as needed. Um, but but we certainly know that there will be failures along the way long term. Yes. Um, and, and that's since that's since 2015, by the way. That's not just 15 or 16 companies that uh, we've invested in in the last six months or 12 months. It's we've been investing in these companies since 2015. So it's a fairly long track record of success so far. It's not to say we won't ever have a failure, but we've done pretty well so far. Right. That's exactly right. So how about we go through this list, Lee, and talk through um, how we mitigate each particular risk when we're looking at companies. So it seems like on this list, the number one reason that startups fail is that they run out of cash. It says 38%. Of companies run out of cash. And, and we do think through that really carefully when companies come to us and they say, oh, we're raising $1.5 million. We always ask them, well, what sort of runway does that give you? Runway means how long do they have until their money runs out? Um, what have you seen, Lee, in your perspective as maybe a, a good plan for runway um, and how companies can mitigate against running out of capital? Sure. I think that uh, uh, the length of that runway should be a minimum of 12 months and preferably 18 to 24 months. Uh, part of the problem at the startup uh, uh, in the startup world is the need to always be raising money. And that's not necessarily in the founder's best interest or the investor's best interest. It's better for founders to be spending their time and and the skill set on building their product and finding product market fit and building the organization rather than constantly raising money. So uh, we have seen, Lydia, many companies that have come to us that had uh, too small of a raise uh, and 
they think it'll last 12 months. And then when we start digging in with the due diligence and looking at their burn rate, their, how, how much do they spend every month, that 12 month runway all of a sudden becomes seven months. And that's not comfortable. That's a danger signal. So the way we mitigate uh, is to make certain that uh, a company is a good steward of their capital and that they are at least looking at a 12 to 18 month, and we prefer an 18 to 24 month runway so that they're not just constantly uh, having their hand out for, for more capital. That's right. And fundraising is, is such a drag on the founder and the team's energy. Um, so besides just running out of money, that's a distraction, really. The, the company's not able to grow and accelerate as it could if the team is really focused on building the business and building their team because they're out raising money so frequently. Um, one way that I see companies enhance their fundraising capabilities is by having non-dilutive grants. That's a great way for companies to have additional capital and not give up more equity in their company as well. Um, so we, we really like to see that in companies that we invest in that can extend the runway. And oftentimes these grants, um, if they are successful in their like the company's completion of using those funds, they can result in even more grant money as well in the future. So we do like to see that um, anytime we're looking at a company to invest in. The other thing that, uh, and this is a really, really big topic, so we'll spend a couple, couple more minutes on it, but uh, for a founder to have a plan uh, for the capital raise, not just the first funding, but sub subsequent fundings uh, really shows foresight. It shows credibility. So if, if a founder comes to us and says, I'm raising $2 million, it's going to last me 24 months. Uh, and here's what the milestones are and what I expect to accomplish with that money and what I'll do with it, what I expect to accomplish with it. And then the next round I see, and perhaps there's a date uh, projected, uh, and that round would be X number of dollars, and we would do uh, other things with that money. In other words, start thinking ahead beyond just the initial fundraise. That shows a, a, a vision that we're always looking for with founders, and it gives us comfort that uh, this particular founder or founding team is really uh, they really have a, a, a process uh, for the fundraising. Uh, and so uh, we don't see that very often. We don't have a lot of early stage founders coming to us with that kind of a plan. But if, if you're an early stage founder and you're listening or watching this, take note, uh, really plan out for several years what you think your fundraising uh, efforts will look like. Don't worry that they will change. Mm -hmm. uh, they will. Uh, what you put together as a plan will not turn out to be reality, but maybe you get somewhere close to that. That's right. Um, and it also, not only does it help our investors plan for the future and understand your vision, but it helps protect the founders as well. Um, Cause every time you raise capital, you'll get diluted down. Um, so if all of a sudden the fundraising gets away from you, you're left with just a tiny little piece of the company at the end of the day. And that's, that's really not, a good thing for anybody. Um, so Lee, how about we go to the next one? Yep. Um, the next one says no market need. I love that one because one of the very first things we consider when we're looking at a company is, is this company solving a problem? Do you want to describe this yep. vitamin versus a painkiller mentality that we live by? 
Oh yes, and this is uh, this is critical. Uh, a lot of founders will come and they think their product is the best thing since sliced bread, and that's wonderful. But what is the problem that's being solved, and is the way the problem being solved a painkiller or a vitamin pill? And the the analogy here is that we can do without a vitamin pill. I mean, it's nice, it enhances our life, but it's not necessarily crucial or vital to our existence. But when we hurt, man, that painkiller is is all we, uh, all we strive for at the moment. Uh, and it's the same thing when solving a, a problem that's out in the marketplace. Is the solution uh, something that is a have-to-have? It's a must-have. Um, and, and that goes to product market fit as well. So, uh, if it's a, a, a painkiller and we've determined that, and that's something in our due diligence that is very, very important for us to, to sniff out, um, then we have to decide, does this product have market fit? Uh, this is 35% of startups that fail fail because there's no market need. Uh, that's a huge, huge miss uh, for a founder. And it's an even bigger miss for venture capital. Uh, you know, at the, at the outset here, we said uh, 75% of venture-backed firms uh, fail, the early stage companies. And why would that be? Well, one of the reasons I believe, this is my speculation, is that there is so much capital out there and they're, they're, they're chasing deals. Venture capitalists are just chasing deals, throwing money at, at, uh, at startups. And I, I, I know of a, a very um, well-known uh, venture capital. He's an angel investor and he invests hundreds of thousands of dollars through his syndicate and, uh, and, and, makes maybe a hundred investments a year. I, it's an enormous number of investments. Uh, and I get a sense that there's a bit of a willy nilly approach. He's just got a lot of money and he's got a lot of syndicate members who are anxious to get into deals. And so uh, the promise there is that, well, we're going to strike out the vast majority of the time, but man, there's going to be one or two or three of these unicorn home run grand slam types of situations that'll make everything okay. Lydia, we've never played the game that way. No, uh, we, we, we are very, very, very discerning about the investments that we make. And we're not interested in just building numbers for the sake of building numbers. And uh, w- there's plenty of capital that, that has demand to be placed, but uh, it needs to be placed in a, uh, in a smart way. And one of the, the problems is if, if somebody comes with a great idea, but it's not a painkiller and it really doesn't have any market fit, that's fairly obvious uh, pretty early in the game. There, there's a lot of pitches that we've seen where we just come away saying the market's too small uh, or there's just there's plenty of other competition in the in the marketplace. This just isn't going to work. I think something that's really unique um, in that same vein about our investor group is that we bring such deep industry expertise to the industries that we invest in: agriculture, animal health, human health. Our investors sit in the room and vet companies um, before we even start our due diligence process, and they really think through the problem that the company claims they're solving. 
Um, I mean, if they don't see that it's a problem in the market that maybe they could be a customer for or their colleagues could be a customer for, we usually walk away. Um, and I say usually, I maybe it's always walk away because if it's not if it's not apparent that it's a clear problem that people are willing to pay money for, then we don't see a path to viability for the company. Um, and we see companies raise a bunch of money that really solving a real problem. If they would talk to people in the industry, if they would talk to potential customers, then they would probably learn pretty, pretty quickly that the problem they think they're solving doesn't exist. Um, we often call that a solution in search of a problem. I see that mm-hmm. all the time. Um, but yeah, I, I totally see why companies fail at a 35% rate when there's no market need. I think pretty closely, the next one is that they get outcompeted. Um, so if they're not solving a problem, that's one thing. If they get out competed, maybe they are solving a problem, but there's maybe hundreds of other competitors that are already out there and or are doing things better than them. Um, so one question that we ask founders all the time, Lee, this is one of your favorite questions. What is your moat? And mm-hmm. we've seen founders really struggle with that. They struggle to describe what is going to keep somebody else from either building their exact same software, hardware, whatever, or what's going to keep their competitors out. Um, what really differentiates that company? Um, companies need to have a really, really clear answer to that. And we need to see evidence of that as well. Sometimes that's in the form of intellectual property or trade secret or how sticky their software is, um, how much their customers love their platform, whatever it might be, or their product. Um, but getting out competed that's kind of a dagger in the heart if, if you don't if you don't have something to to defend yourself against. What do you think, Lee? Well, yes, and and you know, in in addition to that, we ask the question if if they don't present this in their pitch, uh, we ask the question about their competition. And how many times have we heard founders say, "Well, we our product is so unique, there's really no competition," and that's right. a Never that's, al- that's almost a, a, a deal breaker right there on the spot. Uh, there's always competition for the consumer's dollar, uh, and whether it's a specific product or if, if it's in, within an industry, uh, founders need to spend the kind of time and and roll up their sleeves to to dig in and really understand the competitive landscape. Um, when we get presented with a, a chart, there's usually it's a little grid that shows uh, the different competitors they have identified and the features to their product and how they compare with the competition. And how, it, it seems like always uh, all their boxes are checked for their product. And, well, of course. <laughs> yeah. But for uh, the competitors, some of the boxes are checked. And that's all fine and good. But when we do our due diligence, we study the landscape and we identify who the competitors really are. And we do our own grid. Uh, And uh, one of the problems for a founder is if our grid comes up materially different than their competition matrix, uh, we probably aren't going to invest because we think they don't understand their own marketplace. And in a short period of time, we were able to divine what actually the the competitive landscape did look like. And we're so far apart that uh, that damages the credibility for that particular founder. So uh, we're not going to invest in a jockey. Uh, We like to use the 
the, the term jockey for the founder. We're not going to invest in a jockey who we think isn't, isn't going to win. And if you're deluding yourself as to who your competition is and how your product stacks up, uh, you're going to fall off the horse and we're going to know it and we're not going to invest. So mm -hmm. That's right. Um, so the next one at 19% is a flawed business model. We ask founders about this all the time as well. How's your business going to make money? So what's your pricing plan? What are your expenses? Cogs would send us your pro forma. Um, I mean, and our listeners might be surprised at how many founders haven't quite thought through that yet by the time they're coming to investors. And Lee, you said this before, we know these plans are going to be wrong. We know they're going to change. But we really like to see that a founder at least has a basic understanding of what sort of price point is acceptable in the market and would be appealing to their customers and that the business can make great margins on it as well. Um, we like to see a thought out plan um, and pro forma model, um, shorter term and longer term. We like to see both, um, but that, that can really put the brakes on an investment for us. If a founder doesn't understand the economics of their own company and how they're going to be successful, what would you like to add? Lee? Well, not only that, but, it, but be able to prove your assumptions. I think that right. uh, a model is all about assumptions because you haven't, uh, uh, you, you either haven't put it into, uh, into place yet, or you're not far enough down the, uh, down the pike to, to, to really have results that we can measure uh, but, uh, it's, it's, it, you said it too. The plan, uh, is so critical having a comprehensive business plan that gets deep into the weeds when it comes to unit economics, uh, and then being able to prove. So if you say your sales are going to increase, you know, four X from year one year to the next. Well, don't just expect us to accept that as a, as, a, as a funding platform. We need to know how you arrived at that 4X uh, multiple on your, on your year-over-year -year sales. Perhaps you're going to add a sales team, uh, then that needs to go in your plan. You need to break down how each salesperson is going to uh, get traction. Uh, what's the ramp-up time for that salesperson? Uh, how much product... Should that person be able to move, and based on what is this per, is is this type of position typically selling a certain amount of product in a similar industry? I mean that that's in the weeds. I just described something very much in the weeds, but it's that's what we're looking for from a founder to say I've thought all this through. My assumptions might be wrong. I've tried to prove them. Uh, we're much more inclined to take a chance with somebody that's that thorough than somebody that's just swagging it and, you know, putting together a model that exponentially goes up so that from year one, they're selling $200,000 worth of product. And in year four, it's $46 million. I mean, it's, that's not very credible without filling in the blanks and telling us exactly how it's going to happen. Yeah. In the industry, we call that hockey stick growth, <laughs> yeah. uh, like basically exponential growth. Like that's fine, but how are you going to get there? And, and we, we see people stumble with that question a lot as well. They say, well, somebody told me that, that we need we need to shoot for that sort of revenue and, and we'll get there. Well, <laughs> not a very good answer. Not not very strong. Um, so so th the team as a whole really needs to think through what those assumptions are, like you were saying, Lee, so that they're more credible. 
Um, and I, I especially love the tagline. Well, and these are even conservative estimates. How often do we hear that? Like yeah. uh-huh. um, that these blue sky projections are conservative. And so I would just recommend, you know, to founders to tone that down a bit if, if you want to really enhance your credibility um, with investors, especially investors who've seen hundreds of companies pitch before, because um, we hear that all the time and we like to see believable projections, still aggressive, I would say. We want the company to grow quickly and make a lot of money, um, but but maybe not quite through the roof. You know, we like founders who are optimistic. That's, uh, a, good That's a good word. And at the same time, optimism tempered with reality and reality uh, comes about when you can back up your assumptions with some sort of factual uh, basis. So, you know, that's it in a nutshell, I think. And, and then if, if you go to that level of detail and thoroughness, uh, we can help uh, round off some of the rough edges on it, but you're much less likely to have a flawed business model when you spend the time and, and the deep dive. That's right. That's true. So the next one, regulatory and legal challenges, that's the 18%. I actually would have thought that'd be higher. Maybe it's because we invest in so many companies that do have regulatory challenges. So my my perspective is a little bit different, maybe than just overall venture capital. Um, but what we see with like animal health and human health companies from a regulatory perspective is that maybe they are seeking what's called a 510k clearance, um, where there are existing devices and they just need to prove that theirs is safe and it works and it's a better version of whatever prior device existed. So that always sounds on the surface like an easier route, which it often is compared to maybe a brand new device, a brand new invention, but it still takes a really, really long time to receive regulatory approval on even taking that pathway. So companies, if we hear them say, oh, we'll get regulatory approval in, approval in three months, I mean, that lessens the credibility of that founder as well, because they haven't really thought through all the intricacies of that process. They haven't properly allocated costs. They haven't developed a backup plan. If something goes wrong, data doesn't doesn't turn out the way they want, what are they going to do next? I mean, and we hear that from our investors a lot as well, that, oh, their their regulatory plan is just not realistic. This is going to take two years, not three months, and it's going to be a big drain on capital, much more so than they expect. So I see that as being the regulatory burden. What do you think, Lee? Well, not only that, but uh, uh, you also, in addition to the regulatory side of things, uh, the other aspect of this was legal challenges, which uh, I interpret to be intellectual property. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if, if you have a business that relies upon uh, some scientific element uh, or uh, some some level of complexity in a manufacturing process, whatever whatever the case might be, and uh, what what's the ease of entry for a competitor if uh, if in in your space? Can you protect yourself and your product and your investors, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, with patents? And uh, so, and every one of our, uh, pitch meetings with investor, with, uh, founders, uh, we ask the question about intellectual property and we get varying answers. Uh, there are some, sometimes we have strong patents, uh, there are patents pending. Uh, <clears throat> and, and I think this also would be, 
uh, a good place to, to, to mention China. Uh, we've mentioned China before. Uh, if you have a China strategy as a, as a founder where you're reliant on uh, selling a product in China or you're reliant upon China as part of your supply chain, um, I think it's safe to say the Chinese steal everything uh, in terms of intellectual property. And so whether you have the right patents or not, uh, doing business with the Chinese at this stage of the game is, is risky. And it's something that we as a funding platform really shy away from. Uh, so bottom line, make sure that everything that, that you invest the, the money with the right kind of patent lawyer uh, to, to protect your intellectual property to the greatest extent you possibly can, because that's what we as investors are looking for and you need that. And then try to avoid the, 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 uh, uh, the China piece of this, if, if at all possible. That's right. Lee, I'm looking at this list and I think we might have to split this up into two episodes. We've still we got probably, a lot to talk about here. Yeah. How about we talk about one more? Sure. Um, since we, we mentioned a little bit, um, the business plan for, for the company pricing and cost issues are the next one at 15%. So we did talk about pricing specifically a little bit earlier, making sure it's right, making sure the business can make money, but also cost issues. And we've seen that really get out of control with companies sometimes with their expenses just getting racked up unexpectedly um, and they don't have the money to pay for it, whether it's they expanded the team too fast or all of a sudden they're like raw materials, the pricing is out of control, supply chain issues, whatever. Um, and there, there hasn't been a plan in place for what if that happens. What would you like to add about pricing and cost issues? Yeah, I think uh, particularly, let's let's talk a minute about pricing. Um, again, doing deep dive research into the pricing model for the founder is critical. Uh, we've heard founders that say, well, I, we have a premium price product. Uh, to me, that means they haven't figured out how to get the costs down to the point that they can charge a competitive price. Uh, if, you, if you're going to go down the premium price route, then there better be some really compelling reasons why the end user, why the customer uh, would pay more and do so gladly. Um, otherwise, it's delusional. Uh, we do see some delusion with some founders at times. Uh, but a lot of times that comes in uh, when, when they set a price point, they just don't really understand the marketplace. And uh, now, the converse of that is you don't want to have a commodity. Generally, if you're a founder, you want to have something that is uh, differentiates you besides price because the race, that's a race to the bottom when everybody's playing the price game and it becomes a commodity. So there's a fine balance there between uh, moderating your costs uh, to the point that you can charge a competitive price, uh, but relying on having the cheapest price uh, to gain market share is, is that that's a dangerous strategy as well. And on the other side, it's equally dangerous to think that just because you can't get your, your costs at the right level that you have to charge more than the, than the market uh, is used to paying unless there's something that uh, nobody else is able to offer with respect to that product. Uh, you don't have a premium price product. You just have an overpriced product. 
Right. I mean, I, I like that comparison, premium versus overpriced. I mean, not every company can be a Peloton or Apple where they're charging premium prices for what it is. I mean, they've created that brand awareness and that differentiation with their product for what it is. Um, it's hard to get there. It takes a lot of work um, and it's not impossible, but there has to be a plan for that as well. If, if that's part of the company's strategy. Yep. So with that, how about we split this up and we'll, we'll talk yeah. about the rest in part two. Thanks everyone again for joining us.